everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. The central topic that we explore on the podcast is how to change, how to let go of old things, which might include patterns, behaviors, or even earlier versions of ourselves that are holding us back in the here and now, and how we can step into new ways of being and doing. In order to do that, we have to be psychologically flexible, just like how physical flexibility is the amount of stretch in our muscles, the ability they have to bend without breaking, psychological flexibility is the same quality in our own minds. Becoming more flexible includes being open to change and possibility in general, being able to look at a thought or emotion and appraise it in different ways, getting comfortable dealing with different kinds of situations, and cultivating the ability to commit to that which we know would probably be helpful but which is often hard to do. So today we're going to be talking about psychological flexibility, what it means to us, and how we can develop it. And by us, I mean that today I'm joined by a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and of course, my dad, Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today? Honestly, I'm really good. And I know I typically say that, and it's true when I say it. So I, mm-hmm. I'm just saying that I'm really good, and I'm especially <laughs> psyched about this topic. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. And I'd love to know like how you think about this. There's so much in it. I mean, in evolution and in a person's everyday life, there's a trade-off between flexibility and speed, flexibility and automaticity. And flexibility very much kind of implies a semi-deliberate process of choice, which is important, but it takes time. You know, if you're walking down the path in the jungle and suddenly there's a sound nearby, You don't want to slow down to ponder the nature of reality and do I stop, do I go, do I hunker down? You want to jump back really fast because that's what keeps you alive. So we have to balance these things. So I think the whole notion of choice comes to mind. To what extent is choice useful? To what extent is it better to acquire habits and let them do the choosing? And what are the ways in which maybe some people are too flexible about certain Mm. things? And they're too wishy-washy. So it's a great topic. It's full of good mess. Well, you've already highlighted something here that I hadn't even thought about and that isn't in my notes of prep for the episode. So this is great. When you're talking about the trade-off between like thinking about something quickly versus thinking about it flexibly. And that was not intuitive to me before you said it. But now that you've laid it out, I could see how it would be a, a real contrast. And equally, another thing that was kind of surprising to me when I first started digging into this is like some of the motivations for why people are inflexible. Because, spoiler alert, I would describe myself as a uh, reformed rigid person is maybe the way to put it. I think that maybe you could comment on this even better than I could, Dad. But uh, I I used to be pretty, pretty rigid around a variety of different things. uh, It's tough when you're usually right, though. Well, you know, I mean, these were the claims I made at the time. But I, uh, I learned how to open up about a lot of different things. And, and I, I didn't really think about my rigidity as essentially a form of like avoidance coping, that it was a defense against pain. That was like not intuitive to me when I first started to dig into this material. But the more that I learned about it, the more that I realized how inflexibility can be a way of protecting ourselves from different kinds of uncomfortable experiences. It's interesting. So in our minds, let's say, you know, we have various tendencies, various reactions, various views. And so then something happens, let's suppose. And Maybe you're in a place, you're getting your coffee, I don't know, 
I'm free associating here. And and you ask for a blueberry muffin and coffee black, nothing added. And they bring you a gingerbread latte and a chocolate chip cookie. And then you have different responses arising in your mind. Flexibility a lot is a kind of inner spaciousness and inner freedom in which mm. you can choose which of those responses you want to use. Now, some of those responses may be perfectly correct and right. So it's appropriate to be inflexible in your view that water is made of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. I'm really <laughs> rigid about that. Is sure. that a problem? You yeah. Know? I am really rigid in my commitment to your welfare forest. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. hyper loyal, you know? Well, I'm really rigid about my loyalty to my son. Is that a bad thing? So for me, this whole topic is very much about relationship, our relationship to what appears around us and what appears as well inside our own mind. And for me, the healthy flexibility is having a lot of autonomy and agency, plugging one of your favorite themes here, you know, in relationship to what arises so that you can start being a choice about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's this fantastic book we really ought to unpack it called Neurotic Styles, classic from the 80s. Shapiro, yeah. Very good. And one of them was about obsessive compulsive styles. And he pointed out obsessive compulsive, where there's a lack of flexibility. It's an issue of autonomy. Well, that was totally my experience. And I think the big cost of rigidity for me was exactly what you're describing, Dad, which was a loss of choice, a loss of agency. I was effectively shrinking the bars of the invisible cage that were around me. And it goes right to Suzuki Roshi. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. Rigid people, and I would include myself in that category, are essentially acting as if we are an expert on the way that things are, or should be, or are supposed to be, or could be, or all of these things. And so I was tightening the possibilities for myself. I was limiting my behavior, the people I could have as friends, how I might find as fulfillment, what I could do with my life, based on a lot of very preconceived notions about the way that I was supposed to be or the way that I was in that moment, and therefore the, the opportunities that were available to me. And so I was essentially giving up agency in favor of rigidity. And that doesn't sound like a very good trade-off to me in the here and now. I probably wouldn't have thought about it that way back then. And I think that looking at the motivations for that can be really interesting. Yeah, what I'm realizing as we speak here, which is always fun, deeply rewarding for me personally, is basically thinking about useful, unuseful, skillful, not skillful, healthy, unhealthy, rigidity, or skillful, unskillful, healthy, unhealthy, flexibility. For the moment here, I was reflecting on one of the findings around aging. As people really progress toward the end of the lifespan, often they'll become maybe, you might say, more rigid in their behavior patterns or their routines or what they will deal with, which is actually adaptive. As you start to lose function, it becomes safer to simplify the topics in your life, to simplify your activities, to find routines, so you don't have to keep figuring things out newly. So in that sense, rigidity is actually really adaptive for that aging person. Well, I think there's a difference between behavioral choices and psychological choices. Mm -hmm. The capacity that we have inside of ourselves and my mind and my heart, whatever it is, 
to change how I relate to my circumstance, which is how I think about psychological flexibility. Uh, people like Stephen Hayes in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, one of the primary targets for it is increasing psychological flexibility. And he talks about that a lot in terms of the ability to contact the present moment and mm. be with whatever happens to be there without having to push it away or having to make it a certain kind of thing. And to me, that that's the kind of flexibility that I'm talking about here. We could talk maybe as part of this conversation about becoming more behaviorally flexible around uh, being comfortable in different kinds of circumstances or routines or different kinds of people. I think that flows really naturally from psychological flexibility. But I'm talking more about developing this internal trait that I think of as being almost a purely useful thing. Mm. I would not want to go back to being a psychologically inflexible person, although I think that like in life broadly, having the capacity to stand your ground and be firm about what you believe in or firm about how you do something can be a useful, useful capability. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I'm being a little provocative, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. We both agree there's a place for certain fixities of view, right? And, and action. That's not the problem. The problem is when we become inflexible in our relationship to those things. That's what you're getting at. I relate myself to, because I'm really interested in this space, as you know, how do we function in the world without craving? And the heart of craving is insistence, must. That's problematic. And to quote one of your favorite quotes, you know that space between stimulus and response is where we have flexibility. So if there's no space, no flexibility, I think that's kind of what we're, we're talking about here. Can you be fundamentally at agency in how you relate to your own stream of consciousness. Yeah, so why do you think that, I don't know, maybe we can continue to use me as kind of a case study here, Dad. I'm, yeah. I'm happy to, to give my body up for science. Or me, I was a very rigid kid in my way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you've mentioned this also in the past, so maybe even thinking of yourself. Yeah. Why do you think that people sometimes lean a bit too far into the psychologically rigid side of the spectrum? Like, what are we protecting ourselves from? What, what psychological function is that behavior serving? Reflecting on this topic, and this might be, I don't know, too out there, but I, I think for a lot of us, certainly for me, when I, especially when I was younger, existence metaphorically feels like standing on or being on a dock of stable structure that sticks out into the river of time. And for many people, that dock is stable, but that river is terrifying. The river of their, their feelings, all the feelings that could happen, the murky depths, the creepy crawlers, the sharks, the monsters, the acid, the rivers made of acid. Oh my God, don't go there. You know, and that's kind of how it feels moment to moment with your own interior even. So there's a kind of beleaguered aspect to the rigidity that does not open to or flow with the forces within you and, and also the forces outside you because they just seem too overwhelming and scary. So you withdraw. So it's like rigidity as the, as the armor or the bars of the withdrawal. And flexibility is a lot. It's just expanding the range in which you're free. I, I think of the definition of equanimity from Gil Fronstall as or the purpose of practice. He said the purpose of practice is to expand the range of experiences in which we are free. In other words, being having more capacity. So 
a lot, as you know, in therapy, the therapeutic process is to shore up the dock. <laughs> Initially, is to stabilize the dock. Like, yeah. let's be more rigid at first. Mm -hmm. Let's stabilize. You know, like, mm. no, we're not going to talk about those things. We're No, I'm not trying to get you in touch with your feelings. We're going to stabilize the dock with, you know, whatever, breathing or sometimes stabilizing your life circumstance. You know, you need to be with someone who's not attacking you every day. And then from there, you go out into the river, right? You slowly stick your toe in it. You're still here. You're okay. It was actually kind of nice. It's a warm river. Who knew? You know, and then you, you know, eventually get your foot in it, your leg, you start swimming in the river and where the wild things are, you start having fun mm -hmm. there. Anyway, mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of maybe a way into this topic. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I think that's totally true. Have I taken way too much acid? I don't know. Uh, well, you, I mean, you've <laughs> no. taken a lot more acid than I have, Dad. I, I know Maybe, that for I don't a know. demonstrable you might be catch, fact. You might be uh, based up. on some, some previous <laughs> conversations we've even had here on the podcast, I know you've taken more than I have. Uh, for the record, never done acid, you know. Easy then to have had more than you. That may or may not change in the future, but I've done zero quantities of that so far. And uh, anyways, with, with this kind of stuff, I think you're totally right. And I think it's a, a much more big picture way of talking about a, a certain kind of coping, avoidance coping, which is where people try to push away experiences that are uncomfortable for them. And it's easy for us to interpret that through a behavioral lens. And I think that you're opening up the lens to thinking of the nature of being as a kind of uncomfortable experience for many people, uh, probably myself included, where I did feel like, well, I just think of my own nature and I'm, I'm the kind of person who appeals to authority a good bit. Mm -hmm. You can even see it in how I do the podcast, how I do the notes for the Patreon, how I do the research for these episodes. I really want to know what the people that I view as like the authoritative people in a space think about these topics. And I think in general, to your point earlier about kinds of rigidity being really positive, I think that's a good trade. I think that we should want to know what the smartest people believe about a thing or what the most educated people think about a thing. Like, why would you want to know that? And also, it's a form of protection, right? If I have an opinion, and it's also the opinion that the smart person over there has, wow, that validates and protects my opinion. That means that I can be more comfortable sharing it and therefore experience less anxiety around it. And I'm the kind of person who tends to have a little bit of a leaning into anxiety. Yeah. And so that's a really, really great protective measure for me. So think about what actually happens when somebody's being rigid, right? Like, what are they doing? They're controlling a situation a lot of the time. They're trying to make it the way that they want it to be. And this could include everything from the thoughts that pop up in a person's head to where we go for dinner, right? Like the whole range is available. And uh, to use the simple example there, if it stresses me out to eat unfamiliar food, I can either accept that I'm stressed, lean into some discomfort, try something new, broaden the range of my experiences, or I can force everyone to eat only at the places that I want to eat. And one of those is more flexible, one of them is more rigid. And that's just a simple example of how that rigidity can show up as a way to protect us from painful or unfamiliar experiences. So you're talking here about rigidity as a means to a problematic end. Could you explain what you mean by that a little bit? Obsessions tend to be about views. Compulsions tend to be about behaviors to kind of connect it there. That helps you stay on the safe dock. 
poking out into the river of reality, that my metaphor. Mm -hmm. And so rigidity could be in service of a good end, like you're just, you just kind of had it arguing with people who think the earth is flat. But rigidity in the service of being so armored today when you don't need to be, that would be a problematic end. And you're right, exactly. Part of what a major thread in therapy is to help people in a certain kind of way take their stand in certain, I'll call it rigidities that are healthy and positive, like, you know, a stand of sticking up for themselves or treating themselves like they matter and to get, in effect, rigid about that, if you will, and to see things clearly. Like I'll have sometimes people come in and they, they keep saying things like, but that's just my reality. Well, yeah, your reality is that the guy ran a red light and hit your car, but that is the reality. So I'm going to I'm going to step in here dad because I think that I would actually frame what that person is doing in the room with you as a form of rigidity itself not as a form of excessive flexibility. I think that they are rigidly attached to the view that that's just my reality. You yeah, know, very does good. that make yeah. sense? So yeah, so yeah. what I'm talking right. about here with psychological flexibility is yeah. a capacity to look at things in different kinds of ways. Totally excellent. Good which job. Which is how it's framed as a psychological construct, that's how it's framed in the literature. If you never or always do something, it is rigid, even if you are rigidly being flexible, if that makes sense. So in terms of practicalities, can I just say a couple of things that I, I don't think I've ever told you that I sort of do and have done deliberately? Great. Yeah, I would love this. Yeah. So one is to observe the tendency toward a physical habit and disrupt it. Now, maybe the physical habit is to like chew the callus on the edge of your fingernail, which I'll do sometimes, I'll bite that off, and to actually disrupt that. And are you okay disrupting it? Or another part of me, I have maybe at least one of the, I don't know, X number of genes for OCD, and the tendency to wanna to check things, checking behavior. So I leave the house, did I turn off the stove? Did I turn off the water? And I'll allow myself to check once, but I won't let myself check twice, for example. Like I'm forcing a kind of flexibility in. I'm pushing against. So that's the thing. A second thing that I really picked up early on in the human potential days was a way of talking about certain tendencies of the mind that are used as skillful means, not as self-hatred or loathing, in which we recognize the robotic, mechanical, programmed, nature of much of our own oh-so-precious inner world. And when you can step back from it a little bit and just kind of label it, and again, you're doing it skillfully. You've got to be careful with that. But if you're doing it skillfully, it's like, oh, that was robotic, or that was like, I'm just machine-like. I'm just acting out a program. That helps you get a little distance from it. It helps you not take yourself so seriously. You know, when I first heard that framing, I was startled and angry about it, but I started to realize, no, actually, in a funny kind of way, it's helpful to look at some of our reactions like that. Well, I really like those as tools, and I I go immediately to a lot of the ACT stuff because yeah. that's a, that's an approach for starters that I just like and kind of landed for me, and I, I don't know, I liked Stephen as a person when I talked with him, and I think it's a useful approach that's helped a lot of people. But also, it is really built around helping people develop this particular mental strength. And it was a mental strength that I think I struggled with for a long time. 
And that's probably part of why I, I have an affinity for it. And so what are the key practices that are taught in acceptance and commitment therapy? Well, it's acceptance-focused practices, right? <laughs> because rigidity, like I was talking about before, is essentially a form of avoidance coping. We're trying to push something away. Yeah. And sure, you can pull things towards you, but that is also kind of has a tension associated with it. And in a lot of ways, the opposite of pushing something away is actually just like letting it be whatever it is, yeah. as opposed to feeling like you have to pull it towards you, which can also feel really destabilizing, particularly for somebody who struggles with this kinds of stuff. Very good point. Just because you're accepting it does not mean you have to become it. Yes, yes. And I think that that understanding that in a real way, in a practical way, not just like a theoretical way, was, was huge for me. I used to be the kid in the class, to give an example of this, who would cover my ears when a different kid gave a wrong answer. Yeah. Because I, I had so much reflexive like shame and oh, and I felt so uncomfortable about it when somebody else was doing something that like broke my paradigm in some kind of a way. And so like I had to actually literally learn that them doing this thing wasn't about me. And so I had to create the space to just like let it be whatever it was and accept it as it as it is. And like, oh, okay, this other thing is happening over there and I don't have to feel implicated by it. And that was really helpful for me. And then you can expand that out as an example to all other kinds of stuff. Yeah, you started out in that example with a, an automatically occurring mm -hmm. reaction. Mm -hmm. And then gradually with insight, you were able to tease apart the elements of that automatically recurring reaction and, and find some key circuit breakers in it, which is recognizing that your own large-heartedness really is how I would look at it. That was mm. a lot of empathy. You were empathically identifying with that person in a, in a way that was very attentive to them. You know, your boundaries were blurry. <laughs> and then you learned to have a clear boundary there in a sense that you're not implicated in what they were doing and et cetera, et cetera. Probably along the way as well that it's okay to get answers wrong. Yeah, yeah. Also some just like factual learning in there that helped break down some of those rigid views around, you know, it being important to answer the question the right way and all of that sort of stuff. And then alongside that, another big one for me was slowly increasing my just general capacity for distress, what people refer to as distress tolerance over time. And that's that's a complicated thing. People can really misuse the notion of distress tolerance. Just like you were saying earlier, Dad, how people can misuse the notion of flexibility to be like, wacky, wavy, inflatable tube men blowing yeah, in the wind yeah. when that's really not what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. In much the same way, distress tolerance isn't like letting somebody hit you with a hammer over and over again. It's about not turning the normal events of life into hammers that are hitting you by a function of your own psychological processes. And that's really what I was doing a lot, I think. I think I was really amplifying normal range, basic, difficult stuff into like catastrophic experiences. And I had to really work with that over time. Underneath it all, we're talking about a willingness to learn hmm. in the broadest sense, to grow, to heal, to awaken, to learn, right? And so then you think about growth mindset and what you and I focus a lot on is a growth toolkit, how to help yourself. As you put it in the very beginning, how to change for the better, how to help yourself change for the better as a process of learning, which sometimes includes just simply shifting your relationship to what already is without changing it at all, including who you are without changing it at all sometimes. Okay. And so headline here then around flexibility is growth mindset. 
having an orientation toward learning, valuing learning, which includes things that I have a perverse pleasure in, like discovering what I, that I was wrong about something. I actually enjoy that. What do you make of that? I think you're totally right. And then I go to what helps us learn, and it's practice over and over again, practicing something, right? And I truly believe that you can deliberately practice being psychologically flexible. And this was something that I had to practice in my own life. And so I'll, I'll kind of lay out here how I did that. One of the qualities of my rigidity that I think is true for a lot of people is that I had a ton of assumptions. I had just a mountain of assumptions about myself, about other people, about the way my life was supposed to be, about what was important out in the world. And one of the ways into the language of assumptions is by talking in terms of limiting beliefs. A lot of people do that. I prefer thinking in terms of like models and scripts and things like that, which I find a little bit more powerful for me personally. But the idea of limiting beliefs can be useful here as well. And limiting beliefs can take a lot of different forms, right? If I think really strongly that being a logical, cognitively oriented person is better than not being that way, that's really constraining. That is a kind of limiting belief that leads me down a certain sort of path. And as time has gone on, I've become increasingly open to other ways of viewing things, and I have increasingly viewed stances like that as being themselves something that causes me to raise my eyebrows a little bit. These days, maybe I raise my eyebrows a little bit too much because I'm overcompensating, who knows? But that's really something that puts up a red flag for me. And so what I had to develop is the practice of seeing my brain load an assumption into it, and then deliberately taking a pause and examining the idea, turning it over in my mind, going, huh, what am I thinking right now? Why am I thinking that? What are the assumptions that I'm making? And then just go through the list. Am I assuming that, that there's more authority behind one of these views than another? Do I feel a feeling in myself that I'm trying to avoid? I can ask myself the question, what would it be like if things were radically different than I assume them to be? What kind of possibilities would that open up for me? As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. 
Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One thing I'll just name too that's almost existential, which is, are you willing to change? Are you willing to become a bit of a different person? Are you willing to die to the old to bring in the new? Mm. And I think that's a big thing for people. And for me, it's actually been really scary to tolerate becoming different. But then over time, you start to enjoy it. You start to feel safer about letting go of old ways and growing into new ones. I think you're totally right. And I recently had a conversation with a psychologist named Benjamin Hardy, who has this idea of 10x thinking and 2x Mm. thinking. And the notion in that basically is the idea of qualitative change. 2x thinking is doing more of what you're currently doing, but doing it, you know, faster and harder and just more, more, more. Whereas 10x thinking, the idea of it is that it's like a paradigm shift. It's a qualitative shift. It's what you were talking about, stepping into a new way of being. And people are often very resistant to that. And they often come up with a lot of reasons for why we can't be that dramatically different or why we can't release this idea that's like holding us back in this kind of way. And I'm wondering what you think, Dad, like helps people open up to that. Well, two things come to mind. And the second is a little cosmic. So I'll. Oh, shocker. Absolute shocker. (laughs) (laughs) You could be more on brand if you tried, Dad. (laughs) Sorry. Well, the first is the to you familiar notion from Piaget, Jean Piaget, that we learn in two ways through assimilation and accommodation. Yeah. And assimilation being, as you know, incorporating information into an existing structure. And then accommodation is shifting our structure. So let's say you're, you're going through your life and you have the notion called horse. So you see various 
Palominos, you see Sprinters, you see Thoroughbred, and then you finally see a zebra. Mm. Do you shift your frame to go, this is different? Or do you just say, oh, that's a horse that's with- That's a striped horse, yeah. Yeah, with trippy stripes. And then what happens when you see a gazelle or an antelope, you know, at some point, or an elephant, let alone a whale, you start shifting your categories. And that's accommodation, which is cognitively more demanding. It's can be emotionally more demanding because it's, whoa, you're, you're in the world of the new. You've cast off from familiar moorings. And mm -hmm. so learning how to enjoy accommodation is really helpful. And to become more interested in the process of shifting your frame, your perspective, your context. Content matters, but it's context that's really influential. Think about how we are with other people. What's the frame of your relationship? Who's superior? Who's inferior? Who's dominant? Who's subordinate? These are frames. What are your roles? What are your duties to each other? Who are you to each other? That's all frame, which matters usually so much more than the back and forth words and content and stuff. But we tend to fixate on the content, but the frame, boom. Yeah, but changing the frame changes all of the content almost inherently, totally. Yeah, and that's accommodation, frame shift. The more... Cosmic? Cosmic's really the wrong word, but <laughs> we humans and other animals with a nervous system need to continually essentialize what is a completely chaotic, turbulent, and boundaryless emergent reality continuously, including our own stream of consciousness. So we're- Yeah, literally through the function of the brain, yeah. Yeah, and, and literally like single-cell creatures establishing a membrane outside and inside where we have to do that. And yet reality is without boundaries in the deepest level. And one of the aspects of this is the ways in which a uh, place and place memory is just so foundational to the ongoing sense of living and the construction of our own sense of self being. Where are you? Where do you stand? Mm. What's mm. your place? What's in your place? Is your place a good place? Where are the good places? Where are the bad places? These are the first things that rats need to learn. And the advent of place memory involving the hippocampus right next to the olfactory bulb, smelling your way through life mm. was just mm -hmm. foundational. Yeah. You know, my mommy, the mommy who will feed me, you better know that when you're a little mammal 200 million years ago, you know, dodging dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, place memory. So we're very drawn to establishing place and it's disorienting to not have, dare I say it, a kind of rigidity of yeah. your place versus their place. Totally, totally. On the other hand, that attachment to place and that attachment literally in the moment to moment constructing of your sense of, of your experiences is the structural basis for a lot of suffering because we crave essences, we crave things, we crave places, we crave things that are stable and static. It's the maintenance of stable, static aspects of reality that enables us to crave them and to function, but on the other hand, really sets us up for a lot of suffering. So finishing up here in my own personal practice, I've been becoming more mindful of the generation of thingness in my mind and as the basis for attachment and the kind of goal pursuit that has gotten me into trouble in some ways, because boy, I can really go after that goal to a fault. And so 
it's kind of powerful to explore the necessary underlying essence of any problematic rigidity as grounded in a kind of thingifying of reality. And if you can bring a certain solvent, the solvent of mindfulness, the solvent of vipassana, really, of insight into the nature of everything, then things become foamier, cloudier, more fluid, and problematic rigidities are then really undermined from the foundations. Well, I think that whole notion that you were exploring about the primacy of place and how we think is really, really cool for me. And I think it's a really wonderful way of thinking about this whole question of psychological flexibility, because uh-huh. you're right. There are places that are better places than other places <laughs> for us, right? You know, the the mom that is your mom that loves you <laughs> is a better mom to hang out with than somebody else's mom most of the time, particularly yeah. from like an evolutionary context, right? Where you want to be protected. We want to pass on genes that pass on genes. That's like kind of why we're here from a biological level, at least. And then alongside that, seeing the ways in which we have built fortresses inside of our mind, like places that are defended. They're the place where we're comfortable being and everything outside of that place is kind of the wild and spooky wilderness. Well, that's the rigidity that we're talking about. That's a lack of psychological flexibility. And it is inherently defended in that we're talking about the construction of walls, right? We're protecting ourselves from certain kinds of experiences. And I know that for myself, when when people would would attack those walls in different kinds of ways, to extend our metaphor here, I became very defensive. It was very hard for me to drop attachment to place, and it became harder the more that people attacked it. You know, the more that people pushed on the defensiveness, the harder I held my own walls, right? You know, we keep on rolling with our metaphor here. I'm sure that you've had to work with people around this in therapy. I am not the first person to pop out a little rigid and a little defended. When people went through a process with you around these kinds of issues with rigidity, defending the sense of place they were, even if that place wasn't actually very good for them long term, were there things you did with them to help them drop some of the defensiveness around it and open to the possibility that other places could be good places too? Well, you're describing a really fundamental process and What makes it work, as you all know from Elizabeth, your partner, is first to lay a good foundation, just to establish a secure base, if you will, a place. You want to create a place that feels comfortable for them with you together. Then people have different approaches. Some people focus more cognitively. And I know we're going to do an episode on cognitive bypassing and exploring your cognitions about things. But one thing that's helpful for people is to have them, in effect, put on the table how they see it. Because interestingly, it's when it gets out on the table and the person gets a little bit of breathing room from it that they can then be flexible in relationship to it. We can't be flexible with regard to things we're unconscious of. Ah, so it has to come out. And sometimes there's an initial step there that helps to help them, the client say, be comfortable with you to really put their cards on the table, how they really feel about it, how they really see it. So you're doing an intermediate thing there to kind of, now it's on the table, right? And what's really helpful at first, paradoxically, is to join with their view because it helps them be safer about it. And if you're not, as threat goes up, so does inflexibility. 
right? Goes back to that evolutionary issue between flexibility and automaticity. And sometimes automaticity is a lot safer. So you want to lower the threat level so they can slow it down to be flexible, for example. So now it's on the table and you start with what's true about it, what's useful. I'll, those are two key questions, what's true and what's useful, because they're distinct, of course. And then, then you start moving a little bit more spaciousness, like what, what is also true? Uh-huh. What is also true? It's not against what they think is true, but what is also true? And then maybe an expansion of, huh, how do you think other people that you like and respect might look at this? And, you know, these are maybe examples that I'm going over long about, but different ways you can see it, how it would work. You start totally. unpacking it. Yeah. yeah. And then if what arises is a, is a kind of defensive resistance and you go, oh, I, I've moved too quickly here as a mm. therapist. I've gone too mm. fast. I moved up to the 10,000 foot view really quickly, but they're, that's too quick. They're not ready for that. So then we go back into the view and what's good about it, what's true about it, what's useful about it, where did it come from? You know, but over time, people usually, if they're motivated genuinely to get happier and to get freer, then they, they come along and, and there's often a relief and then something that will bubble up. Sometimes what happens for people is when they look at how they've seen things, their face will change. And it's almost as if another person is speaking through them, another part. And they'll, it would be like a voice of clarity or wisdom in them that realizes that there's more to the story. <laughs> and that's such an incredible moment for someone to claim and identify with and make room for that part of themselves. And that sometimes is the real shift. It's not just the shift of the view, but uh, an inclusion of other viewers. Well, that's really interesting. And I think this whole notion of joining with the defense, as it's sometimes called, is really practically useful. And it's it's cool for me as a non-clinician, a non-therapist, to, to hear about how these techniques are applied in practice because I've received therapy, I've been in the room, I've been on the other side of it occasionally. And also, I think there's a lot of real practical usefulness to it, even outside of a therapeutic context, because we can think of our own defenses, right? For me, one of the key steps in becoming less rigid was understanding why I was rigid. It was understanding the purpose, the psychological function of that behavior. Because until I understood that, the rigidity was there because the rigidity was right. The explanation for its existence was that my views were accurate, the rigidity was there for good reasons, and it was just that other people were dumb and wrong. So I needed to create, really, to understand that there might be a different reason that I was behaving in these kinds of ways. And getting that, really, from the inside out in a, in a way that was not self-punishing, but was actually very self-compassionate, was really key to my whole process. And so that, that's a kind of joining with the defense. You're understanding why you're engaging in this function. You understand its purposes. You kind of, you, you see it from its perspective and you go, oh, you know, I get it. And kind of counterintuitively, when I was able to do that, change became so much more possible. You're making me think, I know we're finishing up soon, but you're making me think about rigidity of motivation, rigidity of aims, along with rigidity around views, let's say, 
I actually think for a lot of people, being rigid or being attached, being over-invested in, being over-identified with certain aims and kind of like motivated behaviors is a very important area of rigidity. I mean, the extreme of that would be like a problematic drug addiction. You know, a person is just really inflexible about pursuing that particular experience or behavior. More broadly, maybe I'm not alone in, you know, late stage career looking back and really looking at the balance of where were their goals that would have served me to be more intense about pursuing? Or on the other hand, which is mainly my reflection, what are the aims where I just got too attached to the result and too driven around it? You know, you knew me as, as a dad who was pretty driven around accomplishing certain things and maybe at some cost, you know? And, and lately, I've been watching my mind just really go after doing things at a high level of accomplishment and that other people that I work with should also accomplish things at a high level too in certain settings. And there's some virtue to that. But overall, I've been just watching my mind get rigid about standards or pursuits. And I could tell you, having gone through a fair amount of accommodation lately, <laughs> And shifting that, you know, it's summarized as observing my mind like an eager dog chasing a red ball. And the dog just wants to chase the ball. The dog's going to chase the ball, the goal, the problematic goal. And the takeaway lesson for me about all that is don't chase the ball, <laughs> you know, Rover. <laughs> You're not bad. You like chasing balls, but don't chase the ball. <laughs> That's for me, that's me becoming more flexible about a part of myself. I think this is one of those topics that we could just keep on going with because it is so fundamental and so foundational to so many of the other things that we talk about on the podcast, but we have to kind of call it somewhere. And this was really helpful for me, honestly, and, and helping me kind of expand my notion of psychological flexibility altogether, including how I think about it in my own life. I think there are some ways in which when we are a... When we're a rigid person for a long time and we really go through a process of being like, oh, my whole goal is going to be to become more psychologically flexible in these different ways, it can become possible to almost like err a little bit too far to the other side. Not in terms necessarily of developing this like construct of psychological flexibility, but more generally in terms of starting to see things as falsely equal or get a little too loosey-goosey about different priorities in our life, about whatever it may be. So it, it's possible to err on either side here. But I think that by and large, to return to what you said at the very beginning of the conversation, what we really want to do here is increase our capacity to be at choice about what we do. Increase our capacity for agency, our ability to change, our ability to look at the, the sphere of life outside of ourselves and see it from a lot of different angles. And when we can do that, we become less resistant to it. We become more open to, to stepping in the river, to use the metaphor that you leaned on a couple of times during this podcast, and which has been really useful for me personally. So I had a great time doing this, Dad. Thanks. Thank you, Forrest. I thought this was a really interesting conversation today with my dad about psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility 
can be understood intuitively and it can also be understood as this pretty codified psychological construct where there are a lot of research papers around it and that kind of stuff. And the more general understanding of it is it's just like physical flexibility. Physical flexibility is a muscle's ability to bend without breaking. And in the same way, we want to be able to do that inside of our own psychology. We don't want to be rigidly attached to a certain way of doing things, a certain version of who we are, or maybe a way that other people need to be around us in order for us to feel safe. And then psychological flexibility as more of a more of a construct has really been fleshed out by approaches to therapy like acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT, where it's conceptualized as the ability to contact the present moment, accept what's there, and act in accordance with your long-term values. And in that, there's a suggestion of why people might be inflexible or why they might be rigid, like I was back in the day. And like I am still today, every once in a while, to be sure. And I hadn't really thought about rigidity as a form of avoidance coping, a way to avoid painful experiences, until I got a little bit more familiar with the psychological literature. But think about what a person is doing practically when they're being rigid about something. Well, they're trying to control the situation. They're trying to control their own thoughts and feelings, the thoughts and feelings that other people are having, maybe what they're doing out in the world behaviorally with a group of people. They are essentially acting as a kind of expert. They're saying that my way of doing things is the right way of doing things, and we all have to do things that way. And remember, beginner's mind, right? In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So the consequences of our rigidity, of our lack of psychological flexibility, is that we shrink the bars of our invisible cage. We lessen the possibilities that might exist for ourselves. And we, frankly, shrink the number of situations where we're going to be comfortable in life. Because a lot of life is about getting comfortable with the fact that things are not always going to be exactly the way that we want them to be. And this got us into a conversation that ran underneath the episode, which focused on what the right amount of flexibility and what the right amount of rigidity is. Because, of course, there are things that we want to be a bit rigid about. We might want to be a bit rigid about our commitment to the well-being of other people. But even inside of that, we can be flexible in our approach. We can be able to take on different ways of looking at this concept and maybe engage in some practical problem-solving around different ways to approach it. And Rick used this metaphor that I liked, which was that we're on this kind of pier that is sticking out into the river of existence, if you want to put it that way. And the river is untamed and wild and rapid. And so we stay narrowly on the dock. But part of life is about learning how to stick our foot out into the river and get comfortable entering it. And that's what psychological flexibility is all about. We want to have access to all the tools. There's a place for rationalizing our experiences and being kind of detached and also for feeling all of our feelings and for sucking it up and getting through the day. And I mean, there's a place for all of these things, but it's each of them in the right amounts for us that's going to lead to a fulfilling and happy life. All right. So what helps us actually develop more psychological flexibility? Well, again, rigidity is a form of avoidance coping. We're pushing experiences away. What's the opposite of that? Maybe it's pulling towards, but I think that the opposite of that is actually just allowing it to be exactly as it is without acting on it. That's the true opposite of that. And what's a great tool for letting things be whatever they are? Well, mindfulness practice, which we talk about on the podcast all the time. 
Acceptance-focused practices of various kinds are incredibly helpful for psychological flexibility because they help us take a step back from things and go, I can be with this emotion. I can be with this feeling. I can be with this experience. And it doesn't have to overwhelm me. So I don't have to impose my view of what the right way for it to be is onto this experience that's out in the world. Another thing that allows us to be more flexible is expanding what some people will call their distress tolerance, other people will call their window of presence, pick whatever terminology you prefer. It's all kind of fundamentally talking about the same thing, which is our capacity to be in different situations and remain okay. Maybe they're not our preference, but we're okay. And then from there, we can enter a place of more active engagement with the idea of psychological flexibility, because I think that this is truly something that absolutely can be developed, and we can practice it on a, on a day-to-day basis. We can get in the habit of looking at an assumption that appears in the mind, because most rigidity is derived from assumptions. We have a lot of shoulds about the way that things are supposed to be. And then we can look at that assumption, almost like it's this object that's a little bit outside of us. And we can ask ourselves, what are we thinking? Why are we thinking it? What are the assumptions that we are making? And hey, what would it be like if things were actually radically different from the way that I assume them to be? And toward the end of the conversation, Rick talked about this notion of a place, a secure place, and the ways in which we can operate from that secure place without being excessively attached to it. And that that combination, that back and forth between finding a truly secure and, and helpful place that allows for exploration out into the world without getting stuck in it is, I think, really the essence of what we were talking about the whole time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now on. Maybe leave a rating and a positive review if that's available, a comment if you're watching on YouTube. And hey, you can always tell a friend about the podcast. It's the best way we have to reach new people. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. 